What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy360 Network by Intercom. Excited to bring you this exclusive interview with just another expert from our friends over at Inverse. This time we sit down with MA, with senior MA analyst Andrew Dittmer. It was an awesome conversation. Him and Stuart Curley really covered everything that happened in the MA markets, the, both that happened and how a lot of this coronavirus stuff has shifted the way people are thinking about the way this new MA stuff works. Guys, it's a fascinating interview. I'm not even going to spoil it. I'll turn it over to Stu. All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're here talking with uh, Andrew, and he is from Inverus. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Stu. Glad to be here. Hey, we are ready for a great discussion. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, things are going nutty in our market right now. So, uh, it looks like we're going to have a discussion from uh, M&A to royalties to uh, everything else to Chapter 11. So when we bounce around on this, uh, Andrew, you got a lot of data that you are uh, uh, cooking over there. And Enverus uh, means data. So uh, when you talk about uh, things, um, we've got some uh, 2.6 billion in Q2 20 M&A. Where do you see M&A going? And what are your thoughts on all that during all this kind of stuff going on? Right, so <clears throat> sort of set the stage there. 2019 was a pretty good year for M&A, obviously with the marquee Oxy Anadarko deal. Um, oil prices have firmed up a little bit down the back half of the year, and there were certainly struggles in the shell patch, you know, had a big drive towards free cash flow, investors really pushing for that angle. But overall, the M&A markets were flowing fairly well. We had a pretty good marquee uh, private equity exit there at the end of the year when WPX bought Helix Energy in December 2019. And we really expected that to roll over into the new year, that this could finally be the year when we got some serious consolidation in the oil patch, that all the uh, dominoes were sort of falling into line for that to occur. Obviously, uh, COVID threw a little bit of a wrench into that. I don't think anybody saw oil prices in the 20s, teens, headline negative like we went through in the spring. And so that really just crushed our M&A market. I think we transacted less than a billion dollars in Q1, um, as opposed to, I'd say the quarterly average for US upstream M&A over the last four to five years has been somewhere in the seven to $10 billion range. So one-tenth of what our normal would be. Q2, just because Q1 was such an extraordinarily low number, we did bounce a little bit. Um, that 2.6 billion number that you threw out there, which is a 200% rally, which sounds great. Still our third worst quarter since the financial crisis in 2009. So it's been a rough first half of the year. Um, you know, I think the only quarters that were lower in terms of our upstream MA value were Q1 2020 and then Q1 2019. So, um, you know, headed into the second half of the year, it's, it's a really tough time to make predictions, obviously, but we're probably going to come a little bit off of these lows just because they were so low, the good reversion to the mean. I don't see the market staying quite as depressed as they were in the first half of the year. We've had a little bit of time to digest some of what's gone on, but it's still not gonna be a particularly active M&A market in our view, absent some kind of really unforeseen rally in prices. Oh, you bet. Hey, um, you know, when you take a look at M&A and then you take a look at chapter 11's going on, we're just going nutty with chapter 11's. Um, what are your thoughts on, uh, we've heard from folks that uh, there are, uh, what, 70, I'm just throwing these numbers out, um, 
70 uh, major uh, company oil companies in the U.S. and maybe only 20 survive. Uh, so what are your thoughts between M&A and Chapter 11s? I mean, do you, how many do you think, just ballpark, can you give me your thoughts of M&A versus bankruptcy? Yeah, so in terms of the number of companies that are going to end up filing, you know, I wouldn't have an estimate on that. Um, obviously, that's going to come down a lot to commodity prices. Everything comes back to prices in this business. You know, we, 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 we hem and haw and put out our business strategies, but everything looks good at 60 or $70 crude and nothing looks good at 20 or $30 crude. So, you know, it's going to depend on prices. Um, in terms of Chapter 11's intersection with M&A, I don't see a lot of... Um, interest in the better position, larger companies and going out and buying these struggling uh, shale companies pre chapter 11. I don't think they want to go out and take on those debt loads that they have out there. Even if the equity of the stocks looks so cheap, I mean, man, this is a great deal. Why doesn't uh, pick your favorite major or large company go buy them? But uh, then you look at their enterprise value, add in the debt load they'd have to assume, and then you sort of see where they're, they're staying away. You know, I think that uh, because that chapter 11 mechanism is there, where these companies can go through and clear their debt loads and then come out the other side, they're going to be more attractive M&A targets on the backside of a chapter 11 reorg than they are pre-chapter 11, um, which may be the game that some of these larger companies should play. Let them do the reorg, clean up that balance sheet, get the debt off, and then once they reorg to come back out, let's see if they want to play ball on an M&A deal. On uh, chapter 11s, uh, we are just absolutely seeing those again, as, as you were pointing out on those, uh, debt restructuring is almost just as big as well on that and access to capital to, to do that is tied to the market and tied to those kind of things in there. Do you feel that uh, natural gas companies have a better play of surviving than do the uh, crude oil companies? Um, so in terms of being able to avoid a chapter 11, I think it's all going to come down to your balance sheet and cash flow and, and you can generate cash flow from oil or gas or you're like Chesapeake, you know, you're, you're somewhat of a balanced commodity mix. Um, I don't know that one or the other is really in a better spot overall. I think it's going to come down to the individual company. Obviously the outlook for gas prices are a little bit stronger right now than oil prices. Spot for both is, is pretty bad. But you look at the strip pricing on gas 12 and 24 months, it's getting back to a level that some of these guys should be able to, to, to make money and generate some cash flow. Um, and obviously they're taking advantage of that by hedging right now. Oil guys, you know, the, the, the 12 and 24 month strip, you're still sitting in that low 40s. That's a pretty tough number to be at. Um, it's better than 20, but, but really I think what we've seen in the past is you need that high 40s breaking above 50 for a lot of these oil companies and oil plays to really start working in terms of generating cash flow. So, I think that the low guys are in a little bit tougher spot than the gas guys, but it's really going to come down to the individual company and balance sheet. Uh, uh, you'd also mentioned in some of your uh, discussions in there about contingency pays, uh, contingency payments. Uh, they try to negotiate the risk split. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So contingency payments have been a part of the market now for a number of years. We've seen those in deals. I don't think we've ever seen them so broadly and universally used as we have in the last uh, quarter. Very, essentially, every big deal we had in Q2 had a contingency payment in there. Um, and they even went back on a number of the deals that had been agreed to in 2019 and added a contingency payment in as sort of a way to... Um, 
continue to move the ball forward and make sure they got to a close. Devin Banpu is a great example on that. Uh, Devin selling their remaining Barnett assets to Banpu, which is a large coal uh, energy conglomerate out of Thailand, operates in the U.S. under Calvin Ventures. Um, some people might be more familiar with that name. But uh, so it was a $770 million exit, good fair price for the asset, agreed to in sort of a different commodity price environment. COVID hit and the market rolled over, and they restructured that deal to be, I believe, about uh, $560 million up front and $260 million in contingent payments. So it benefited both sides. For Vanpu, it is a smaller payment up front. They took almost $200 million off of deal value there, but there's that contingency on the back end where Devin could actually end up getting more than the original purchase price should gas prices uh, hit the thresholds that are baked in there. And if gas prices are at that level, I don't think Vanpu's going to be unhappy making those contingent payments at that point. Uh, it was a good deal for them and, and, a, and a good spot. Um, you know, other deals this quarter that used those, we had National Fuel Gas bought Shell's Appalachian midstream and upstream assets. They, uh, they baked a, a contingency in there. I believe that one was tied to using some stock as consideration. Um, you know, most of these are linked to commodity prices because that's the big question mark right now when you're trying to balance between buyers and sellers, okay, what sort of outlook are you taking on these? We did have the Ontario Resources Royalty sale to uh, Sixth Street Partners, and that one was linked to volumes as opposed to commodities, which is a little bit of a unique feature of being a royalty deal because the, the operator, Antero, has control of how much production is coming out of there. The more they produce, the more money Sixth Street makes, so they put in that contingent payment to sort of uh, incentivize Antero to continue to produce and uh, hit those thresholds and make the deal work for everyone. You know, when you, we, uh, oh, sorry, when we uh, back and take a look at some of the uh, EMP companies, one of their best assets is their royalties and, and other things. Um, what are you seeing on the royalty fronts as this just nutty market goes on? Yeah, absolutely. So royalties were one of the hottest asset classes in upstream coming into this downturn. I think in late 2019, we transacted our, our best quarter ever in terms of royalty sales. Um, and it's a business that, that's been there for a long time. So people have been buying and selling and trading royalty interest since oil and gas started but maybe has been more broadly aware in the market in the last four to five years. So you saw a lot of the private equity companies go out and launch royalty funds. Um, they did a lot of the legwork in terms of going out, finding landowners that had positions in good plays, sending out offer letters, negotiating the deals. They would amalgamate these royalty interests and then have them to flip to the publicly traded royalty companies or pension funds or that type of buyer. Um, you know, we've seen that continue. It's gotten to be a tougher business. A lot of the, uh, the premier royalty positions that were out there and available, if, if your family owns uh, mineral rights to 50,000 acres in, in South Texas or the Permian Basin, you've probably gotten so many letters and offers at this point that if you were inclined to sell, you did. So those positions have gotten a lot harder to find. Um, it's gotten to be a lot more small time blocking and tackling and buying royalty interests. So picking up little pieces here and there. Um, which may actually be a somewhat easier business to do in, in the downturn. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's terrible that there are a lot of royalty interests that are owned by ordinary people. Um, maybe they're financially not in as strong a position as they were at the start of the year with, with everything that's happened. So you're looking at what, uh, what you might get some cash for, and, and there may be more potential sellers out there kind of on the small side of the royalty business that, uh, that they can go up and pick out and amalgamate these positions. 
Um, on the other side, for, from an E&P perspective, they really have all sorts of strategies on the royalty interests. Uh, some like to keep buying them. They say they won't drill a well unless they have a, a pretty substantial royalty interest underneath it. They don't want the 75% NRI, which is sort of the standard economic interest for the company with a 25% lease burden on there. They want to drill wells where they have an 80, 85, 90% NRI, which gives them a big uplift in economics. So some are out there buying royalty interest, trying to get the um, NRIs up under their own positions. Others are, are almost in the position of those individual buyers. Cash is a little, the sellers rather, cash is a little bit tight right now. What do we have that we can sell that's going to bring in some value? Well, we can't go sell a non-op uh, working interest or even a non-core operated asset because there's just not much of a market out there right now for your bread and butter working interest, what we think of as oil and gas assets. Um, so we're... So, so what do we have that can sell? Well, a uh, couple, uh, couple quarters there, midstream infrastructure was popular, water gathering, um, gathering and processing assets, but maybe that market's not so hot at the moment. Well, at least, okay, we have these royalty interests. Can we sell some of these down? Well, there's a market for that. And that's what you saw Ontario do, I think, is that you had a high NRI in their interests. Um, so, so it was something they could sell down and still have a good economic interest in their wells. There's a big market for that. And then they were able to get a deal in place and, and put some cash on the table to tie them through and uh, you know, make, it, make it work for them. You know, um, Andrew, as we sit back and take a look, you've got M&A and you've got bankruptcies. Some of the uh, oil companies are, you know, like Pure Play and, uh, you know, the Balkan or anything. Is there a pattern you're seeing to uh, what plays are, are getting hardest hit? Are you taking a look at the Powder River or DJ or uh, are any of those trends picking up from the plays in financial difficulty or financial things? Yeah, you know, in terms of an M&A perspective on these plays, which is what I mostly focus on, obviously rig activity can be, is tangential to M&A, but the M&A sort of, is, is its own ball game. Uh, what we saw was pretty much the Appalachia is where the, the money went in Q2. So it was Marcellus and Utica deals, which gets back to that outlook for gas prices being a little bit more optimistic. You get back into that uh, 225 to 250 uh, MCF strip pricing. Okay, we can make money at, at this level. Where Where's the lowest cost of supply for gas? Well, Marcellus is a great play, as is the Utica, that's the whole Appalachia Basin. Interestingly, the buyers on those deals weren't regular shale companies. Um, you got National Fuel Gas, which is sort of a diversified, long time, I think they're over 100 years old. Um, upstream, midstream, I think they have some, some kind of utility type businesses. And then Diversified Oil and Gas, which is a really interesting company, you know, I'm sure you've come across, that uh, is, is listed in the UK, but based in Alabama. And uh, their strategy is entirely to go out and buy these sort of mature pdp heavy either conventional or really drilled out unconventional assets they don't drill wells they just buy assets and operate them um, harvest the cash flows so MA is critical to them because they can't grow production organically through the bit everything is m a uh, driven so it was public company buyers but not really shale companies targeting kind of that, that low cost supply there in appalachia um, no Haynesville deals, which is sort of the other premier gas play that comes to mind. You know, you look at, okay, where, where can you get the most economic gas production? Obviously, the Haynesville has benefiting it. It's in a great geographic position. They're on the Gulf Coast. Generally, have pretty good realizations on their gas produced there. 
uh, access to both the Gulf Coast Petcam development, which is a big ongoing trend, and the LNG export facilities that are coming online there. So, so those are sort of the two gas plays we're looking at the most. There are some other ones out in the Rocky Mountains. Um, they were popular targets back in 2017, you know, Peons Basin, Green River Basin, Pinedale, um, these type of fields. We didn't really see any activity there. Oil plays were pretty much a massacre in terms of M&A um, in Q2 and Q1. Um, you know, the, the big three we sort of think of in terms of, of pure oil plays, or the Permian obviously is, is the grill in the room, and then your, your little bit more mature Bakken and Eagleford. And uh, I was looking at the numbers on those, and I think those three plays averaged around seven billion in M and A a quarter from 2017 through 2019, with a disproportionate amount of that coming from the Permian. Um, we had one deal in the Midland Basin between Pure Acquisition and High Peak that was originally agreed to in December 2019, and then restructured uh, last quarter. So we went ahead and we canceled the old deal. We have that counted as a deal in Q2. That gives the Midland Basin around 850 million deal value, but it was really a second go at a deal that was a leftover from 2019. You back that out and you're looking at just about 100 million for those three plays in the quarter. So almost no interest in, uh, in the oil plays. You know, in terms of when it restarts and starts to come back, I think people are probably going to go to the best in class, and of course that's going to be the Permian Basin. Um, we don't know what pricing for acreage is going to look like on the backside of this, honestly. We really haven't seen a market. There's no parallels to, to draw to. Well, last time we had a major pandemic, uh, prices did this, and we don't have that to point to. They're probably not going to be where they were. I feel self-confident, probably not going to be where close to where they were. So, you know, you can go in and get this great Permian acreage at relatively good prices, that's probably going to have a domino effect further down the line. There's not going to be a whole lot of interest in your sort of uh, maybe less desirable or, or, or more challenging oil plays or liquids plays. You know, if you can go in and buy Permian at, at a few thousand an acre, sub 10,000 an acre, sub 5,000 an acre, wherever it is, maybe you're not going to go look at the Powder River Basin or the DJ Basin quite as hard. Not that this can't be great plays, it's just there's more good acreage to be had maybe in the Permian. And those plays tended to get spillover when the Permian got expensive and a little overheated, but that's certainly not gonna be the market we're in coming out of this. Um, you know, that um, that is kind of, I'm gonna throw a curveball your way right now, Andrew. Um, yeah. uh, on our news desk and everything at Oil & Gas 360, we are just seeing that the pipelines are getting slaughtered you know, from the court rulings and not being able to get done and everything else. How do you think the takeaway or what is your opinion of all the pipeline problems uh, getting built or right-of-ways? Uh, what kind of thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely a, a big ongoing issue and uh, it's one that, that, that's even pretty close to home here in, uh, in, in the Hill Country. Kinder Morgan's working on a pipeline that's gonna come close to my town here in Fredericksburg and there's uh, quite a few stop the pipeline signs around town. So it's not necessarily limited to uh, East Coast or areas we generally think of as being less energy friendly or, or, or less pro-business. You know, it's some pretty strong, strong community sentiments there even in, uh, even in this area. And obviously, in terms of getting them built, that's, that's a pretty sensitive subject. Um, you know, the feed through to, to the market we're in, pipelines are necessary. I mean, we need them to, to get the production out of these plays, out of these fields, and, and to the end users. Pipelines are the most efficient, the safest way to do that. Um, everything that's not a pipeline, rail, truck, is more expensive and more prone to, to accidents. So 
obviously producers are going to, to, to need that pipeline capacity um, to the extent they can get it. If you can't build new pipelines, it's going to make the existing infrastructure that much more important and that much more valuable, which maybe you know you have to think you saw Warren Buffett's uh, arrangement uh, with Dominion earlier this week, where he uh, he was buying it right as that um, the was it Atlantic uh, um, Coastal Pipe actually. Yep. Uh, uh, their, their major project was being canceled. And uh, so you think that that infrastructure may, uh, may be more valuable going forward. Um, obviously, it was a tough blow for the Bakken with the court ruling up there to, uh, to, to, to stop flow through the Dakota Access Pipeline, which, you know, the Bakken had finally gotten to a point where production was low and it, it moderated and, and the pipeline capacity was sufficient that the differential, which had been a real, real thorn on their side now for basically since 2014 or longer, um, it had pretty well gone away. And I think you actually saw a point where Bakken crude was selling at a small premium to WTI, which unimaginable a few years ago. Um, now with that pipeline access being shut down and having to go back and looking at rail options and other alternatives there, that puts that differential back into play and, and really affects, um, you know, affects the economics of being able to produce there. So, Infrastructure is always going to be important. Obviously, it's important to the pipeline owners. It's going to be important to the upstream producers because you really having that available capacity to be able to get your product to market um, is always critical in a tight, tight environment like we're in, where prices already are just on a knife edge where you can make money. You really can't afford to be paying those premiums on transportation, so, so you need that access. And again, that's probably going to help the plays that have good infrastructure and, and are close to end users. So you look on the gas side, Haynesville, geographically about as good as you can get. Um, if you were looking at the Eagle Ford and the Bakken as sort of your two mature oil plays, we, maybe you like the economics on both, you thought they were slightly comparable, well, the Eagle Ford's 100 miles or so, a few hundred miles from, from, from Houston Ship Channel, Bakken's up uh, several you know, thousand, um, you know, maybe it kind of influences where, where your interest is in terms of ease of, uh, ease of access to infrastructure. Um. You know, as as we Michael and I have been teasing on the oil and gas uh, digital closing bell storage, and you know when you take a look at using pipelines and almost bathtubs, as we laughed about, you know, or buying our own tankers with this just glut of storage going on. You know, the Ameri the uh, airlines are what at twenty percent, I think, like that. So when you take a look at demand generation gradually coming back online, how much do you think that that's going to affect storage? Because there's still a lot of, I mean, our storage tanks are still. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah, so that's the pr proverbial uh, pool in Midland that, uh, you know, cheaper to fill them with oil than water. Um, you know, I was tempted to buy, we had, we had some, some extra land out here, tempted to buy a barrel or two myself, but uh, yeah, that, that, that storage overhang, you know, that, that is going to be a big issue. And we saw that last go-round in the downturn um, in 2015, that when your supply outruns demand, uh, demand falls. Well, that supply is somewhat inelastic. I mean, these wells are going to keep producing. And obviously, this time, we, we had OPEC actually ramp up production there for a bit in the face of falling demand. Um, it was sort of Saudis and Russia went through a little bit of a maybe uh, – disagreement on, on the direction they should go. So you really did crank up that storage and when supply and demand finally gets back into balance, that's going to take a long time to burn through. You're going to have to run a pretty decent deficit on, on supply relative to demand 
um, to be able to work your way through that storage and get back into a balanced market and see some uplift in prices. And I'm, I'm not, I'm an M&A guy, you know, obviously prices are important for that. I'm not an expert on prices. We have people in the company that know that a lot better than, than I do. But that is, I think, one of the, the, the features and factors that's maybe keeping the strip price in the future outlook for oil um, a, a little bit more depressed. You know, you don't see that strip pricing, despite the, the roll off of some U.S. production uh, rising the way that it might otherwise. And, and it may be a long time before we reset and see those higher prices that uh, producers really need. Again, maybe, you know, an uplift to talk about oil versus gas. We touched on that a fair bit earlier, that uh, it's a little bit of a boon for the gas guys. We're not dealing with that storage overhang to the same extent. Obviously, there is gas storage in the U.S., but maybe not to the extent that the oil can be sort of tucked into every corner. Um, and also, you know, they have the benefit of dealing with more or less a domestic market as opposed to the oil guys who are sort of at the mercy of the, the winds of OPEC to a degree. Boy, wasn't that a... Wasn't that war between France and Russia just a hoot? I mean, that that was horrible. I mean, uh, the the prince came out later and gave us the Scooby Doo moment when he said, "I've made a mistake." I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Um, you know, when we sit back and you know we talk about your M and A uh, expertise and in coming in. Um, what are just I'm going to throw a uh, an open-ended question. What are your thoughts on M&A in the next quarter and then by the end of the year? Sure. So, you know, again, it's it's, it's predictions are always hard. What's the old famous uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. I think uh, well, Yogi, Yogi Berra pretty well nailed it. But in this market, especially coming out of the uncertainty level we've had, it, it's it's really hard to read the tea leaves on where we're headed. Looking at what we've had. In the first half of the year, um, where prices are, we expect to see gas deals continue to transact. Um, again, like I mentioned, maybe spreading from Appalachia to some of the other low-cost basins that are available, Hinesville being the big one, maybe some of those old legacy gas plays of San Juan, um, some of the Rocky Mountain plays. We had Talos go out and do a Gulf of Mexico shelf gas deal, uh, which we mostly think of Talos as, a, as an offshore deep water oil producer. They add a little more gas to their mix there on the shelf. Um, so, so we expect to continue to see more of that. On, uh, on, on the corporate side, we haven't had essentially any corporate, major corporate consolidations this year, which is something that we've looked for now for a number of years and quite a few other analysts have too. You know, every year we go to bat that, well, it makes a lot of sense. This is finally gonna be the year that some of these guys tie together and we get our, our consolidation wave. Obviously we haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't see a major consolidation wave down the back half of the year. I could see some of the stronger companies potentially co combining with each other. I don't think it's looking at distressed assets so much as, okay, we're both two pretty good producers with pretty clean balance sheets. Maybe some of those tie together and, and, and grow scale and get a little bit more efficient and, and a little bit better positioned. Um, and, and it could even be combinations you know, between publics and private, some of the larger private companies. Um, may, may take equity and roll themselves into the, the larger public companies. Uh, it's another way for the private equity sponsors to get out. That, that's been a challenging issue too, is there's a lot of unrealized private equity investments out there that were put in place 2017, 2018, um, that, that you know, they hoped around now would be the time they're starting to look at exit opportunities. And well, in this market, those aren't there. So you, know, you could potentially see some combinations with, between large, well-positioned private and public companies. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the, the distressed guys, there's really not much incentive to go out and buy them pre-Chapter 11, wait for them to roll over, go through their bankruptcy process, take that debt off the books, and then maybe feel like the asset base, you can start to look at some of those guys. Um, 
some of those chapter 11 filings will end up in sales as opposed to, to reorgs. You know, that's something we've watched. The last time around in 2015, we had this wave of chapter 11 filings. Pretty much everybody restructured, um, very, very limited. 363 is the, is the provision, the bankruptcy code for, for sales. Uh, very few sales last time around. Our, our theory and thinking is that there probably will be more 363 sales this time, more creditors. You can say, guys, we've already been through this once, maybe, or we just don't like the outlook. We know it's a bad market to sell into. This isn't the best time to launch a process, but, but let's go ahead and run it and you know, burn the hands. Uh, we're through the bush type deal, see what kind of cash we can get for these assets. So we do expect to see some 363 sales. And so we have seen that on the private side, um, a couple of the notable ones, like Gavilan, which is an Eagleford producer backed by Blackstone, is running a 363 sale. Um, they were the ones that went in with Sanchez and bought Anadarko's Eagleford asset back in 2017. Sable Permian, which is, I believe, an iteration that, that goes all the way back to Aubrey McClendon's post-Chesapeake career, um, American Energy Permian, I think, and, and has already had some financial difficulties and recapitalizations uh, since then. It is filed Chapter 11. It looks to be pursuing an exit. Um, and they have some assets that will probably draw some buyer attention, you know, um, some middle and basin stuff, a lot of oil production. Um, on the public side, pretty much everyone that's filed is, is, is launched a reorg. So obviously Chesapeake is the giant one that's out there. You know, we've also seen Whiting, I believe, Lillis, a couple others. Um, and pretty universally, I don't think any of them have pursued sales at all going the reorg option. Um, you know, another interesting thing kind of in that dynamic is because there's so many moving parts on Chapter 11. We ran the numbers on how bankruptcy sales valuations stack up with non-bankruptcy sale valuations. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of moving parts. You're never going to get a true apple-to-apple -apple comparison and, and attribute, okay, this discount or this premium is because of this factor. And, you know, it could be the timing of the sale, individual commodity mix, asset quality. But broadly looking at the deals, you know, we did see a pretty substantial discount on assets sold in bankruptcy versus assets that were being sold just in the normal course of business. Um, that could be you know, as high as 50, 60, maybe even 70% in some cases. And so companies that do want to do asset sales may prefer not to do them in the bankruptcy process, but go ahead and do a restructure and a reorg and then look at trimming their portfolio, getting some sales done. Once they're on the other side of that, they're not on a rush timeline um, and maybe they can negotiate better deals for themselves. And we have seen that in the past, you know, companies that, that went through a reorg and then essentially liquidated themselves post-bankruptcy by selling off their positions, but would rather do it on their own terms rather than, than going through a, a bankruptcy process and all those hard deadlines that are in there with that. You know, so, so those are all kind of things we're looking at um, in, 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 a, in the back half of the year. And I've heard sort of like consolidation, I think one that's come up quite a bit in the last couple of years that maybe hasn't played out yet is a return to interest in conventional assets. Um, that, that was gossip I heard around at NAEP, and, and you may have caught some of the same stuff that, uh, well, the shale, we're having a hard time making money on the shale assets, guys. You know, maybe we should go back and look at some of these old conventional fields, conventional plays. We made a lot of money drilling those. Um, <laughs> prospects were going to be the ones that everybody wanted to see at NAEP. And, uh, you know, it makes sense, uh, the, the headline deal. Um, but, but we really haven't seen that play out in M&A markets. Like maybe there's about $200 million in, in uh, conventional asset acquisition. Um, you know, in the last quarter, but, but certainly no wave back of buying conventional assets. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds good on the headline, but there, there's, there's a lot of issues there too. You know, you remember why shale was so popular. You get into con the conventional world and, you know, you're all of a sudden you're drilling dry holes, which almost never happens in shale. Um, you go offshore and you're looking at uh, 30, $50 million well as opposed to a, to a three to $5 million well. 
Um, so that's something that certainly could come into play. You know, you could see some more interest in conventional positions. But haven't really seen that yet. So, um, you know, when you and I got to sit down and visit at NAEP, <clears throat> Uh, how long do you think it's going to be before you and I can sit down at NAEP again? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's uh, lo lo longer than it should be, I'm sure. I, uh, I miss those, those days and uh, chance to see that and see everyone in person. And this is great, you know, um, seeing everybody on the screen and having a chance to catch up. But uh, no, uh, no, no replacement for sitting down in person and uh, grabbing a post-NAEP beer and all the good stuff that uh, goes along with, you know, we're, we're a social bunch of oil and gas. I don't think our industry takes too well to uh, social isolation, social distancing. No, in fact, uh, we would probably get accused of doing, you know, everybody would not be wearing a mask in the oil and gas industry and we would be at the bar. So that's, uh, I, I am looking forward to seeing you again at the next NAPE. And I, you know, Andrew, I just really appreciate your time because you really did do some good discussions on the uh, M&A in Chapter 11. And uh, I'd love to have you back uh, on the next time when you have some things to uh, share with us. So thank you very much. For yeah, well, thank, thanks for having me on. And, you know, it's, it's always one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, great, great to catch up with you. And, um, you know, the, the, the market's always changing. If I'm Asked me for these predictions the first half of the year. Who would have thought we'd see a pandemic and uh, we'd all be doing this from home on our computers and uh, dealing with, with with negative oil price headlines? So you, you make your predictions as best you can, but I'm sure we'll have a lot of unforeseen, interesting things to talk about uh, come come the next quarter or the end of the year. So we'll have to get back and do this again for sure. Oh, that sounds fantastic! And thank you for stopping by. All right. High-level stuff there from Andrew and Stu, guys. We really appreciate Andrew and everybody at Inveris who has, who has joined us on the Energy 360 podcast. Guys, you can check out all the past episodes of this show. Go to the Energy 360 podcast by Intercom, available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also check out all of the Oil & Gas 360 content at the world's greatest website, oilandgas360.com. Until next time, guys, we'll see you then.